Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to John 19. And we pick up at verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore, many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we come to your word that you would help our minds to be focused on the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, and his work of humiliation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So, we come now to the crucifixion of Jesus, which happened, as Scripture puts it, at the fullness of time. We're reading about the fullness of time. We're reading about the, the, you know, that the time has come to term. And from eternity past, think about this, from eternity past, the crucifixion was the work the Son of God was determined to do in obedience to his Father. He was to be slain as the unblemished Lamb of God. From his incarnation, he was advancing boldly toward his crucifixion each day, keeping the, the law each day and trusting himself to his father. And then for three years, before the crucifixion, he began preaching repentance. Repent. That's what he preached, repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he announced. He went around announcing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. 
In response, the envious Pharisees begin to, you know, they're getting provoked by what Jesus is saying. Those envious Pharisees begin, you know, working together with the Herodians. Be like Russians and Ukrainians working together today. Right? I mean, they're enemies. They have no respect for one another. And yet, when it comes to getting rid of Jesus, those Pharisees will team up with the Herodians to kill Jesus. The plan of God from all eternity was worked out by the hands of godless men, motivated not by redemption, motivated not at all for good purposes, motivated not to bring about the the forgiveness of sins. They were simply motivated by a fierce hatred for this this man and a fiercely and deep jealousy. They were envious of the crowds, envious of the authority with which he spoke. And so that was too much for them. They needed to figure out a way to get rid of him. And what we must not forget and what ought to lead us to daily shouts of thanksgiving, right? When we wake up, when we're walking along the way, when we grab lunch, when we're doing our work, when we're doing the laundry, when we're putting our head down to bed at the end of the day, we should be praising God and giving thanks because the Son of God willingly went to the cross so that you would be redeemed. Redeemed. Dead in our trespasses and sins, we were unable to save ourselves. And so now as we think about the cross, there are so many wonderful hymns that speak of the importance of the cross. And they just, they they percolate in our minds, or um, I hope they do um, percolate in our minds. But think of this, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. And then what's the next line? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Right, great short hymn. It was this work of Christ that allows us, when we die, to enter into God's presence and not be cast out. Enter into God's presence and be welcomed. Right again, Mary has experienced this. She knows exactly how precious now the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ really is. In awe of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. She sees God as will any who put their trust in him. On Thursday, when, when I went up to the hospice house, everything having to do with Mary is, is a little bit, for me, like mystical. There have been weird things that have happened with her and prayer and me, and it's been weird. And I imagine that's the case with a lot of people and their relationship with her. I mean, I've told you about her, her prayers before, but... Um, I, on Thursday, I was just like, no, nah, I'm going to go home. I'm, I was just 
you know, feeling selfish. I don't want to go up to hospice. She'll be okay. I'll go tomorrow morning. And then I was just like, nope, I've got to go. I've got to get up there. And I, I made it to the hospice house, and maybe five minutes later, she passed from this life to the next. I saw her last few breaths. And how helpful that is to be at the bedside of somebody who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, who knows that she is saved only by his blood, right? And to see her take that final breath, it's mind-boggling. And not be afraid. So glorious. Sandy was there, and Jasmine was there, who's cared for her for the last year, and, and Josh Wolf was there as well. And, and we, you know, I came in and said a few words to her, and then we were just sort of chatting, and then we were like, turn back and wait. You know, wild. But she, she loved the Lord. And she just died in the Lord. And now she stands in the presence of God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Right? It was this work of Christ that will allow us and allowed her, when we die, to enter into his presence. This work on the cross. And so, I mean, I just kept thinking of, as I was working on this sermon, I, I kept thinking of hymns. Right? The hymns you know. We really need the gilded lily of song to help us express the glories of the cross of Jesus Christ. Right? When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Right? Pour contempt on all of my getting frustrated about this and that, you know? Put your eyes on the cross and all of that fades away. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the cross of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them to his blood. I give them up. I burn them up and sacrifice to have his blood. I mean, strange, isn't it, that we would boast in a crucified king? that Jesus would willingly lay down his life, that, that very fact is despised by so many people. Many who put their trust in princes and chariots and the, the strength of man's arm, right? Our Savior died, and that was no weakness. It was the predetermined plan of God the Father. Our Savior died, and it was through that death that we are made alive. It's through that death that we are redeemed. And of course, he rose again. <laughs> and that death, that death could not hold him down. Death was defeated. And death was defeated by death. Death was defeated by death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the Christian faith. This is what those who are saved believe. 
this, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. If a man puts his trust in anything outside of the cross of Jesus Christ, he cannot go to heaven. It would be to have a cancer and reject the proven cure. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life and death, O Lord, abide with me. My favorite hymn. It's my hope and sincere prayer that each of you that are here this morning, here sitting under the preaching of God's Word, or watching online, when you are drawing your final breath, think about it. There'll be one final one. That you will have enough awareness and calmness of spirit Right? By God's grace to focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. We boast in Christ's humiliation. We boast in him dying and being beaten in the face and the crown of thorns. We boast in all of this. We boast in all this because we are healed by every one of those wounds. Those wounds heal us. Right? We are blessed by Christ being cursed. Again, it's glorious. It's glorious. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Now, if we doubt that God is angry at sin, we have not properly understood the cross. It is only by looking there that we can fully understand, right, just how bad we are. Worm doesn't even get at the depths of our depravity. Son of God had to die to atone for your sins. The Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity who took on the flesh, had to die so that you could be set free from your sins. I mean... It boggles the mind. I mean, I'm not going to get much deeper than this, but this is pretty deep. This is Sunday school sort of stuff this morning. The eternal God took on the flesh and died for your sins. It's only by looking at the cross that we fully understand how bad we are. The Son of God had to die to atone for sins. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? You who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, hear may view its nature rightly, hear its guilt may estipate, 
estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed, see who bears the awful load, tis the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Calvin says much the same thing, though less poetically, of course. Listen to this. Assuredly, we are prodigiously stupid if we do not plainly see in this mirror with what abhorrence God regards sin. And we are harder than stones if we do not tremble at such a judgment as this. Jesus on the cross. If we look at the Son of God on the cross, right, and and don't see the absolute unmitigated hatred of God for sin, we're so stupid. We're like rocks. We're dumb. Or you're dead. You're dead like a rock. So in the cross, we see the wrath of God towards sin and the love of God towards sinners. Again, Calvin, whoever then takes a just view of the causes of the death of Christ together with the advantage it yields to us, will not, like the Greek, regard the doctrine of the cross as foolishness, nor like the Jews will he regard it as an offense, but rather as an invaluable token and pledge of the power and wisdom and righteousness and goodness of God. That's what we see in the cross. Now let's look at a few things from from John's record of Christ's crucifixion. The Romans now at the insistence of the Jews, okay? So the Romans are doing the crucifying. The Jews have insisted on it, and Pilate's not happy about that, remember? So the Romans, at the insistence of the Jews, put the cross on Jesus' shoulders and make him carry it out to the hill on which they crucify criminals, just outside the city, outside the gates. Golgotha. At some point, we know from the other Gospels that Simon of Cyrene would take that burden from from Jesus and he'd carry the cross behind Jesus as he walked toward the hill. It was typical, get this, for two days to pass between sentence and execution. That's what was typical. For Jesus, from the time he initially stood before Pilate and the time of execution was just a little over two hours. Listen to how Edersheim describes the procession from the Praetorium to Golgotha. The terrible preparations were soon made. The hammer, the nails, the cross, the very food for the soldiers who were to watch under the cross. Four soldiers would be detailed for each cross, the whole being under the command of a centurion. As always, the cross was borne to the execution by him who was to suffer on it, perhaps his arms bound to it with cords. Ordinarily, the procession was headed by the centurion, or rather preceded by one 
who proclaimed the nature of the crime and carried a white wooden board on which it was written, right? The sentence was written on this white board. The centurion or somebody else would precede the, the, the cross. Commonly also, it took the longest road to the place of execution and through the most crowded streets so as to attract most public attention. But we would suggest, Adersheim writes, that this long circus, circuit, no pun intended, and the proclamation of the herald were in the present time dispensed with. Not only did they take, not take the long circuit, they just went straight to the place of crucifixion. Okay, holding, holding that white board. I mean, this whole situation is a rush job. The Jews are so insistent on Jesus' death that they dispense with some of what, what would have even added to his humiliation, right? Let's walk him around the city. They dispense with some of his humiliation so much they want him dead. The board on which would have been written his crime was adjusted by Pilate. The Jews would have liked it to have say, said, Blasphemy or rebellion, insurrection. But Pilate determined to take one last swipe at the Jews for extorting this sentence from him. On that board affixed above Christ, on that Latin cross above his head, was written Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. And we smile about it because we know what Pilate meant was another swipe at the Jews, but we know that it's proclaiming the truth. Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews, just so no one would misunderstand what was written, it was written in three languages, right? Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. As one might expect, the chief priests didn't take kindly what Pilate was doing there. They didn't suggest something else entirely, um, but they did just want a little adjustment to make it clear that Christ's words had been, as they saw it, lies. Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Now, Pilate, still angry that he had been forced to bring the situation to a conclusion, answered them, what I have written, I have written. I really think this is one of the more glorious parts of Pilate's activity in this whole affair. He writes a true statement. He doesn't know it's a true statement, but he writes a true statement. And it was not like the pronouncement of a sentence, right? It was just a, a true statement. And he leaves it at that. And in t unintentionally, he announces the gospel to all the nations. <laughs> Three languages. It's going out to everybody who could speak, all the crossroads there, right? It's just, it's being placarded before the nations. And strange that Pilate, who bowed to their demands to put Jesus to death, would now hold his own on this front. God was restraining him. God was restraining him and giving honor to his son. 
What should we learn from this example? It's, it's really a hard application here to understand Pilate's resolve at this point to be commendable. When we're called to give testimony to the glory of our Savior, do we waver? Do we waver? Do we do worse than even Pilate, the pagan unbeliever? Do we hide our light under a bushel? Do we hope that we do not have to testify to the hope that we have within us? Let's just keep it in us. Do we grieve the Spirit by hiding our faith? Well, then let's learn something from Pilate's good resolve. <laughs> it seems so weird to say it. Let's learn something from Pilate's unwavering announcement of the gospel in the face of hostile attackers. We know his motives are terrible, but nonetheless, he does better than we do at times. We must glory in the cross and glory in our weakness and glory in the fact that we have been saved by the Son of God. That which we glory in, dear brothers and sisters, this is true, that which we glory in is that which we talk about. Right? Is that true? We get a new iPhone and guess what we talk about? Our iPhone. If you glory in your car, guess what you're going to talk about? Your car. If you glory in your material wealth, you're going to talk about your material wealth. If you glory in your intellect, you're going to talk about your intellect. You're not even going to say smart things. You're just going to say you're smart. Glory in Christ. Glory in Christ. Guess what you'll talk about? Even when the whole world thinks you're insane, even in the wicked and perverse generation that we live within, right? You'll talk about Christ. I mean, again, Mary, everybody who came through her door, all the, all the people who are working for her, before long, she's like, do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? And they'll say something weird, and she'll be like, no, that's not quite it. Let me tell you about Jesus. She's blind. She can't see them, and she's sharing the gospel with them. She gloried in Christ. And maybe for some of us, it will take losing our sight and our health before we glory in Jesus Christ. Maybe that will be helpful to us because we glory in our strength. The text then turns toward those soldiers that had led Jesus in procession to Golgotha. As Jesus hangs on the tree, bearing not merely the physical pain of the crucifixion, but enduring his father's turning away, they begin to think about what they can get out of this whole situation, soldiers being soldiers. Their attention turns to Christ's clothing. And normally it seems that they would divide all of the garments in four between the four that, you know, processed along with Jesus. But then there's the seamless tunic and it was different and they determined not to divide that. But 
simply to cast lots. And so the lucky winner got the whole seamless garment. And even this tiny little detail, even seemingly almost nothing, was to fulfill Scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Where was that prophecy made, and by whom? Well, it's, it's in a psalm by King David, Psalm 22, and that glorious psalm is filled. I mean, it's chock full of prophecies of Christ's crucifixion. Here, here's the beginning of it. For the choir director upon Ijaleth Hashishar, Hashishar, the hind of the morning. We think that's maybe the name of the tune, but we're not sure. A psalm of David. And the first verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. And you they trusted and were not disappointed. So right there, we begin to see the, 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 the forsakenness of the Son. Right, this this breach in the Trinity that that isn't a breach somehow. I mean, we did, we can't comprehend this. But here, this is like an expression of Jesus on the cross, inspired by His Spirit, thousand years ahead of time. But I am a worm, and not a man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Isn't this wild? Isn't this incredibly beautiful? Isn't this amazing that we have a psalm from David inspired by the Spirit that gets us in the mind of Christ as he's hanging on the cross? Describes him there what his thoughts are. 
what his pain is. The excruciating death that he's going through. But think of it, dear brothers and sisters, again, he's there for you. What glory that you are the recipients of Christ's grace. He took the cross in your place. You should be there. You should be the one saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore the infinite weight of his father's hatred of sin in your place. And so it's, it's now today that we, as the psalm says, declare Christ's righteousness. He has performed all that was necessary. And so, again, do you want to be free from your sins? Those of you who don't know Christ, do you want to be free from your sins? Do you want that gravitational pull toward hell released from you? Do you want to remove the crushing weight of your guilty conscience for those three or four sins you gave yourself to that defiled many? Do you want to know peace in your, in your life, any sort of peace? Then believe in the crucified Savior. Believe in the crucified Savior and confess with your mouth that he rose from the dead. Faith in the Son of God justifies. Faith in the Son of God clothes you in all the righteousness you will ever need to stand before a God who absolutely abhors even just a speck of sin. And it's all so simple, isn't it? It's so wonderful. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So one final hymn text to bring this sermon to a close. Ah, holy Jesus, how hast thou offended that we to judge thee have in hate pretended? By foes derided, by thine own rejected, O most afflicted. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. T'was I, Lord Jesus, it was I denied thee, I crucified thee. Lo, the good shepherd for the sheep is offered, the slave hath sinned and the son hath suffered. For our atonement, while we nothing heeded, God interceded. For me, kind Jesus, was thy incarnation, thy mortal sorrow, and thy life's oblation, life's sacrifice. Thy death of anguish and thy bitter passion for my salvation. Therefore, kind Jesus, since I cannot pay thee, I do adore thee. And will ever pray thee, think on thy pity and thy love unswerving, not my deserving. That's the gospel. That's the gospel, isn't it? That's your hope, isn't it? The cross of Christ. It's a glorious, glorious, powerful, it's the glorious heart of what we believe. It, it is our salvation. 
So do not lose sight of it, dear brothers and sisters. Let me pray. Lord, Father, we praise you. We thank you for sending your Son. We thank you that he was strong. He was unwavering. He went straight to the cross, willingly for our souls. And we are now cleansed. We are made pure, white like the snow. And so when we, when we cross the veil, when we go through the stormy waters, when we arrive in the presence, in your glorious presence, we'll be clothed in Jesus' righteousness. And we will know your love like we have never known it before. We will just bask in a world of love, of comfort, of the release of all fear, perfect protection. Things will be the way that they have meant, been meant to be. And Father, we will finally worship you. We won't lisp. We won't be distracted. We won't be annoyed by voices around us. We won't be lazy. We won't be disgusted with ourselves. We'll truly worship without any inhibition. And you will finally receive from us the praise that you deserve for your glorious work. What other, whatever myths, whatever concocted stories, whatever wishful thinking others look to for their salvation, I pray that those unsubstantive nothings would have no part in us, but that we would be focused on the cross of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.